it's really hard to feel like you're writing like the thing that you're used to being your saving mechanism is actually a trap. Like even in trying to construct the right sentences, I felt like I was laying a trap in which I was going to be exposed as being hopeful about a conversation that other people were just going to bring their cynicism and their dismissal to. And, and it's so infuriating to have, to have that happen in tandem with seeing people who look like you being killed and detained and arrested and beaten. It's just sort of like, why would I do this work again? And um, something about drawing us and just writing the conversation got me out of that position. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. Today, we're talking about conversations, the good, the bad, the ugly, and most importantly, the uncomfortable. We all have unfinished conversations that haunt us. And my guest today, the writer Mira Jacob, had the genius idea to take all of her awkward, unfinished, anxiety-inducing conversations and collect them into a book. Her stunning graphic memoir, Good Talk, which was far and away my favorite book of 2019. It's a thought-provoking, funny, heartbreaking, and yet still surprisingly breezy read. Everything you want in a good book. Mira is an Indian-American woman who was raised in New Mexico and now lives in Brooklyn with her white Jewish husband and her young son. The book begins with a series of innocent questions from her son as he grapples with what it means to grow up as a mixed-race child in America. What unfolds from there is a profound meditation on race, as Mira presents a series of conversations from her past what it was like growing up brown in a predominantly white part of America, her fraught relationship with her relatives in India, and the challenges of dealing with a set of in-laws who support Donald Trump. Using a deceptively simple graphic style, Good Talk addresses complex issues of race and identity with incredible nuance. Though she was no stranger to writing critically acclaimed novels, her debut, a Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing made several best books of the year lists. Mira hadn't done a graphics-driven book prior to Good Talk, so I was keen to talk to her about exactly how the creative process unfolded, how she dove into creating a graphic memoir with no formal drawing experience, how she protected herself emotionally while creating a work that deals with painful conversations around race, and the challenges she faced with promoting this and previous books as a woman and a person of color. If you're not familiar with her work and you want to have a little context in advance of this conversation, you can hit pause and read the visual essay, 37 Questions from My Mixed Race Son, which is linked in the show notes. It was Mira's first piece about the alternately hilarious and disturbing questions her son was asking her, which later became the jumping off point for creating her book, Good Talk. Now, without further ado... Let's dive in. For listeners who are not already familiar with your graphic memoir, Good Talk, could you describe what it's about? Yeah. So I think the easiest way to describe it is um, the subtitle, which is it's a memoir 
in conversations. And it's a series of conversations I've had over my life um, that were tipped off by my son, who was six at the time, figuring out that he was brown in the same moment that Ferguson, the Ferguson protests were going on and Trump was coming into um, power and his grandparents, who are white and Jewish, became Trump supporters. And to give folks a little bit more context, could you share some of the questions that your son was starting to ask you that really sparked sort of the impetus for the book? Oh, absolutely. So one of the really funny things is he was obsessed with Michael Jackson. I'm brown, I'm Indian, um, and my husband is white and Jewish, and my son sort of lands between us on the color spectrum. So when he was obsessed with Michael Jackson, some of the questions were actually just really funny, like, what happened to his other glove? And, you know, is that how people really walk on the moon? And then some of them were a little bit, um, it was like he he was trying to figure out who he was. So he, at one point, he was alone in his room with a bunch of Michael Jackson albums for like hours, which is kind of maybe a terrible idea in the first place. But he came out and he was like, so mommy, is, uh, is Michael Jackson, is he brown or is he white? And I was like, yeah. So, mm. so the thing about Michael Jackson is that <laughs> he is, um, he's black, so his skin is brown. <clears throat> and then he sort of uh, turned white. And he goes, he turned white? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no, I'm not going to, no. And he said, am I? And I was like, you're definitely not turning white. And he said, daddy? And I said, well, daddy's already white. And he goes, was he always? And... <laughs> And that was kind of the tip off where I was like, oh, I'm in over my head. I like even just trying to explain this very basic thing to him. I felt like I was in over my head. But then it got kind of harder because as I was saying, the Ferguson protests were happening. We were seeing them go down streets near us. He was asking me what that was about. He was seeing little things on TV. And then one day he kind of just asked me out of the blue, are white people afraid of brown people? And it was just one of those weird, it was one of those questions where I was like, what, how is this a question you're asking when you're six? Also, Like, how could I possibly answer this question? Honestly, when you are six. And also how could I not answer this question? Honestly, because I don't want to be the woman who lies to you. I don't want you to think later on in life, my mom just lies to me. So what I ended up saying was sometimes like sometimes white people are afraid of brown people. And he said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, uh, what do you mean? And he said, how do you know which ones are afraid of you? And I said, well, you don't always. And then that night, I felt really awful about it. And I tried to write an essay because that's what I would normally do in this situation is write an essay and sort of say, this is what's happening. This is what my family looks like. This is what we're going through. And every time I tried to write that essay, you know, <clears throat> this was 20. 14, 2015 America, where we kind of hadn't ramped up into the full ugliness of 2016, but we were already deeply in the place of if people were talking about what it was like to be brown or black in America, there was a wall of very angry white people there to greet them, to say that is absolutely not what it's like. I don't believe you. That never happened. You poor little snowflake. Just all the things were already happening. And I'm used to that. Me, because I'm, you know, an Indian woman and I'm been living long enough to, and have published enough to have a loyal following of people that, you know, would otherwise love me to shut up at every turn. But I'm not used to that for him. I'm really not used to people coming out 
for him. And that was the part that really scared me. So kind of in frustration, I drew us on printer paper and then I ran to his bedroom and I got all the Michael Jackson albums and I put them on our dining room table and I put us on top of the albums and then I cut out the conversation. I, meaning I drew it on paper and then I cut it out the way that you would if you were doing a comic book, like I cut it out in top bubbles. And I put those on top of the albums and then I stood on the dining room table and took pictures of them and cropped them and sent them to a friend. And I said, I feel like this is a story. Do you feel like this is a story? And he was like, yeah, it's a story. It's definitely a story. So that's kind of how it started. Mm, it's amazing. It's such a remarkable book. And and so it's really about showing this conversation, right, with your son and then many of the other conversations that were formative to you, as you said, conversations with your parents and conversations with your husband and people you dated and past employers and mother-in-laws and friends. And at the heart of all of these conversations is this meditation on race and how we navigate it in America. And so you knew you wanted to write about these difficult conversations and you just sort of started to go into it, but could you go a little bit more deeply into how the idea of conversation, the idea of difficult conversations really informed the style and the format of the book? Yes. So I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about how this book happened is because, you know, and I told you I was trying to write that essay. I just also have to say, I just got exhausted every single time I tried to write it. I was like, no, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of trying to convince people that don't want to be convinced or who are frankly going to like decide based on a single adverb that nothing that I've written is true at all. Cause I've had that happen. I put things up online and people will pull out, you know, she said slowly here. And if she wouldn't have said slowly, maybe I would have believed it, but she said slowly and I don't anymore. And it's really hard to feel like you're writing like the thing that you're used to being your saving mechanism is actually a trap. And it felt like it was becoming a trap for me. Like, like even in trying to construct the right sentences, I felt like I was laying a trap in which I was going to be exposed as being hopeful about a conversation that other people were just going to bring their cynicism and their dismissal to. And so infuriating to have that happen in tandem with seeing people who look like you being killed and detained and arrested and beaten it's just, you know, it's sort of like, why would I do this work again? And um, something about drawing us and just writing the conversation got me out of that position. Like, what you see when you open this book is you just see the conversations. It's a conversation between me and somebody else. It's two people, sometimes a few more, talking about something and then you you read that conversation and you go on to the next and what you don't get is a lot of con, like a lot of context. I just don't give you a ton. I don't say, you know, I give you a little bit, you know, in 2002 the buildings were burning and this is what was happening, but I don't say that conversation made me feel this way and then this one made me feel this other way. You know, I just don't do any of that. I just show the conversation so you can as the reader hold on to whatever you want to. You can take in that conversation. You might even read it a different way and understand it a different way than I do, but you're witnessing something that is real and was real for me. And you can decide to interact with it or not interact with it. You can decide to listen to it or not listen to it. But what you can't do is tell yourself that you would have been sympathetic to me if only I had done the convincing more perfectly. I'm no longer trying to convince people with this. It's just out there. 
Right. And so you were trying to show it in this sort of unmediated, irrefutable way, right? So that there's no no sort of artifice or anything around it, that it's just sort of like this, this is what happened. And so people can't reject it yeah. based on the notion of style or your, you know, perspective or something like that. I mean, they definitely can and they do and they will, but it's, but, <laughs> but I'm not exhausting myself in the, in the trying to do that. Does that make sense? So like, because it was so, it's so hard to explain the emotions that go along with being in a body like this. I, I wasn't trying to parse those out carefully. I was just showing what had happened and then moving on to the next one. And, and in fact, the entire first three drafts of the book, I never addressed anything about my emotional state. And finally, my editor um, kind of said like, I, these are great. And I do need to know what you're thinking occasionally. And I do need to know what you're feeling occasionally. And I was like, oh my God, really? Um, but it was actually really funny because because I had sort of reserved all of my emotions because I hadn't really done that level of parsing them through, I could come to that part of the work with a lot more energy. What I'm interested in this idea of sort of show don't tell which seems to be a little bit what you're talking about and specifically how effective that can be as a technique when you're dealing with topics where people get uncomfortable um I was thinking about that earlier as I was preparing for this interview and it was making me think of this series of photographs by this uh photographer named Jeff Shang and he did a series of portraits of LGBTQ people in the military before don't ask don't tell was repealed and the subjects of the faces are obscured in every shot but they're still really resonant. And I always think about there's this one image of this guy standing on these carpeted stairs in what looks like a suburban house. And his head is out of the frame. And, and next to next to him standing on the stairs, there's these three sets of shoes like beside him on the carpeted stairs. You know, and I looked at that image and I was like, oh, my mom does that, you know, like stacking things on the stairs that need to be taken upstairs. And there's something that's so universally relatable in showing this image of an LGBTQ person in the military in their home. And I remember thinking like, wow, these photographs will be so much more effective than a million essays and changing people's thoughts about don't ask, don't tell. And it ended up being repealed not too long after that. And, and so I'm curious about your perspective on this idea of kind of showing rather than telling and specifically when you're dealing with, you know, issues that some people find it really difficult to process. I mean, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because I... I think when I started it, what I was responding to most was the freedom I felt creating it. Like I just, I, I, what I, I really love writing dialogue, like writing dialogue to me is always kind of the, the joy of, you know, I was a novelist before this. So really the joy of the novel for me was always getting to the part where I could write dialogue. Um, because I just, en I enjoy the way that I feel like you can sort of inhabit a character fully. And because of the way that conversation sort of lives in my brain. Like, do you do the thing where you wake up at five in the morning and you sort of have a response to a conversation you had seven years ago? <laughs> For sure. Right. So like, I live in that place permanently. I just feel like I'm in a permanent sort of, I'm in a, in permanent conversation in a way with the ones that sort of never ended, you know, like there are certain conversations that felt to me like they never resolved. They never got to a good place. And so I live with them, like they're a bunch of relatives. And so getting to just put those into the light felt really, really satisfying. 
so kind of going back to this idea, which you were touching on earlier, almost of this sort of emotional labor or trying to to not do some of that emotional labor as you were creating the book. Um, you know, some of the, the way the images are created, they almost feel sort of like paper dolls. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you basically created one image for each character, sort of same facial expression, same outfit, same everything. And then you use that one image again and again. And from chapter to chapter, the representation will change, like, you know, their outfit and maybe you have a side ponytail now or something. But there's always a sort of aspect of sameness and repetition. And the characters really are just representations. They don't show any emotion. Yes. Could you could yeah. you talk a little bit about making that choice? Yeah. So that was, that was, it was so funny because um, you're right. And I actually think of them as paper dolls, the way, because when I was working with them at first, when it was just me and my son on top of the albums, they literally looked like paper dolls um, that I had sort of drawn quickly. And so when I decided to make this whole book, and even though I was doing it, um, you know, I was drawing on the computer and, you know, I could have done any multiple, I could have done it in, a, in kind of a myriad of ways, it felt important to me that the faces never change expression. And it was funny because my first editor um, found that really troubling and was sort of like, you know, I, uh, so sometimes when I'm reading, I feel like the face doesn't change and it kind of feels weird. And I said, weird, how? And he said, because, you know, like something will happen and, and like, you know, your son will say, are white people afraid of brown people? And your face back is just blank. And I feel like maybe, do you want to make like a face? Sometimes when something's really hard hitting, maybe you want to have like a cry face. And I was like, like a cry face. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, like a tear, maybe like a, a, an eye with a tear. And I was like, mm. and he said, what about a consternation face? And I was like, that's really funny. Cause I actually just feel like my, I have resting consternation face. So I was like, I, I got that one covered. Um, but really what it was, and I, and I really had to kind of figure out how to do this, which was a little bit of the trick of the drawing, is I had to make these faces that could be saying absolutely anything. And in doing so, they weren't really projecting any single emotion too much. And, and what was great about that is that it was doing the thing that my editor didn't love, which was when you can't look to a drawing, to the face, to cry for you, right? Like when you're in, a, when you're watching a movie, basically we watch it to see all these different sort of emotional catharsis happening. So if you're waiting for that to happen in a graphic novel and all of this kind of very heavy, you know, like, or, or just weird or, you know, awkward conversations are happening and the face retains a blankness, you have to hold on to the emotion longer than you want to. Like you just have to feel it. You don't have any other choice. You have no place to put it down. You have no other face to take it on and do the work for you. So, um, so yeah, I was really wedded to keeping the faces blank, and I always have them facing um, facing the reader. There's, you know, I had like rules for myself, like they can only ever face the reader. They always have to be facing outward because, in some way, it's breaking that fourth wall, um, and it's saying like you, and it's implicating the reader. It's looking straight at the reader and saying, this is the conversation so that the reader feels spoken to even while remaining invisible, which I don't, I don't know what it's like to be a white person in America dealing with race, but I, but I do feel like 
I feel like a lot of my, you know, my white friends and family members do deal with race kind of in that manner. Like this conversation is happening and it's, and it's about me, but I'm kind of not, I'm, I'm implicated, but I don't know how. And I, and I don't know that I need to respond. And I felt like, let's just take that positionality and turn it into something else. That's so interesting. You're making me think I, I recently was doing some, um, I did a mindful self-compassion workshop. And one of the things they were talking about was when someone is telling you something painful and, you know, you have that impetus to try and like fix it, um, that that is really sort of like a short circuiting of you feeling the pain. Like the reason you want to fix it is because if you fix their pain, then you'll feel better. Um, it's kind of interesting, right? Like you're saying kind of just, you give them the blank, you give them the blank wall and then, you know, you're not telling me the reader how to react or you're not telling me anything about your pain. So I just kind of have to sit there with whatever my, you know, feeling is. It's really, it's really beautiful. And I mean, you know, the, the dialogue itself is definitely telegraphing all sorts of emotions, right? So (laughs) yes, like the dialogue is itself is just sort of crackling with life. And sometimes it's laugh out loud funny. And sometimes it's just like you read it and you're like, let me just go and cringe under my table for an hour. So I don't have to know that this was a conversation that a human had with another human. Um, But I feel like all of those things together with the blankness, um, it, it made it into an equation that I was sort of uniquely primed to solve over and over again on the page in some way, just as the creator. And then, and the thing that I always think about a book is you make the book you make. And then there is the millions of books that are released into the world as each person reads it because they come away with a different book than the one that you wrote, right? They come away with their own version of that book. So that in itself has been really wild to see how that has sort of played out. How people have processed it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to give people a little bit of context, you're talking about the dialogue speaking for itself. I don't think we quite got there, but you're sort of introducing some of the questions that your son is asking at the beginning, um, you know, and kind of escalates into, you know, are white people afraid of brown people? And then you, you know, deciding how to how to respond to that question in a, in a truthful way. And then it kind of escalates into him asking you if his father is afraid of him, right? Yeah. Who's your husband, who's white and Jewish. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of add that moment in to give people a sense of how just potent, just, you know, just the standalone kind of conversation is. I mean, what an amazing question to have to deal with. And it was really, um, it was really wild when it happened. Cause again, it's like this sweet, you know, a kid from six to eight is basically like being in charge of a child at that age is sort of like being in charge of a benevolent alien. Like there's just so many things they don't understand about how the world works, but they come to it with a relatively like, you know, a relatively like nice amount of good humor and like belief that anything could be possible. So you know, when he was asking me that, when he asked, like, are white people afraid of brown people? It was, it was almost like, it, it felt like it was just purely a point of curiosity, not something that could scar him for the rest of his life. And likewise, when he asked, is daddy afraid of us? It was in that chirp again. It was in that really sweet, like, is daddy afraid of us? Just like, and I was like, what? You know, I didn't say what I said, no. And then I saw his 
brain sort of waited with something. I was like, no, no. And later in the book, um, I kind of bring it up again when he's trying out like various terrible knock-knock jokes on me. And I'm trying to have this like serious conversation with him about race. And I'm like, you know, you know, he's basically like knock, knock, you know, and all the terrible mouse, you know, this is mouse mouth. I'm looking for my teeth and just terrible jokes, terrible jokes that make no sense. And then he, I'm saying to him, what about daddy? What about if you ask daddy that yourself? And he sort of says like, no, I'm not going to ask daddy that question. And I said, why not? You know, I think he'd feel really great if you'd ask him. I think that'd be great. You know, just being like an overbearing mother. And he's, and he was sort of quiet and he's like, you know, I don't, but I don't want him to feel hurt. And I said, well, why would he? And he said, because you and I are brown and he isn't. And I don't want him to feel bad. And I was like, wow, there are so many things that are happening right now. Like you're, you're trying to protect your dad from feeling like an outsider in the same moment that you are worried that he might not like that he might be afraid of you. And what was crazy about that is I have done those exact same machinations my entire life for mm. my white friends and family. And just knowing that it started like that early on, I mean, that was mm. one of those ones that I will tell you, I just went and sat in the only place where you can have privacy in a New York apartment, which is the bathroom. And I just would like, after, you know, I put him to bed and I would just sit in the bathroom and stare at the towel rack and be like, what am I supposed to do with this? What is the right thing to say? We have to take a quick break now, but keep those earbuds in. After the jump, Mira and I talk about the rules she invented to make herself get creative through constraints and the challenges of navigating self-promotion when other people think they know your audience better than you. This episode is brought to you by Harvest. In an era when everything is constantly speeding up, time is our most precious resource. And unfortunately, it can't be stockpiled. But it can be managed more wisely. Harvest is a simple and intuitive time-tracking tool that gives you the data and the wisdom you need to manage your days more effectively. If you're working in a team environment, Harvest can help you stay accountable to your biggest priorities. You can see if the projects that are taking up the most time are aligned with your values. And you can also see where time is being wasted and what's standing in the way of progress. If you're working on your own, Harvest can help you hold yourself accountable to your personal goals by spotlighting areas where you may be spending time on tasks that are out of alignment with what you want to accomplish. What's more, Harvest provides you with a personal time report each week that helps you see how the reality of your workflow may have diverged from your expectations. And once you know where you're veering off course, you'll be well equipped to recalibrate your approach and use your time more wisely in the future. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Here's a fun fact. I originally wanted to call this podcast Whistling in the Dark. 
Personally, I still think it's kind of a cool name, but my guess is that it would have been significantly less successful than Hurry Slowly. For better or worse, a great idea is only as good as its first impression, which is why every idea deserves a great domain name. And Hover makes the process of finding that domain name completely seamless. They have a dizzying array of extensions to choose from, including all the classics like your .coms and your .orgs, plus a bunch of new school favorites like .me, .io, and my personal favorite for graphically-minded businesses, .design. Plus, and this is the best part, Hover doesn't constantly try to upsell you. Whois privacy is included with every domain, and features like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. And if you have a bunch of websites like me, the more domains you register with Hover, the less you pay in renewals. If you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. All of the characters in the book are shown only in black and white, even though you often have them on these kind of full color background images. And given the role of race in the book, I have to imagine that that was a deliberate artistic choice. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think race in America is only ever discussed in terms of black and white. And so all of us that are not on that spectrum, and frankly, some of us who are on that spectrum just don't feel like we don't feel seen in our fullness ever. Right. We're never seen in the fullness of like what, how much more dimension we have other than that particular, you know, kind of landing on that scale between black and white. So, yeah, I did it for two reasons. So that was that was the sort of intellectual reason. Everything that I was doing, it was really funny because I got to make up, you know, if you make up a visual language for yourself, you just get to make up the rules. And a lot of times it was like, this looks good. How, you know, let me go with this one. And then sometimes it really was a kind of a thought process. So that in particular, I was like, right, you're never going to color the skin. Like you're never going to add the, you know, an actual brown, yellow pigment. You're not going to do that. It will always be in black and white. But then the other thing that I don't know if you noticed, but sometimes like one time I was lying, I was lying in bed one night and I was like, so is that what you're saying? Are you just saying that people are born into certain bodies and that means that that's who they are and they're doomed to be one kind of person just because of the body they're born into and I was like no absolutely not that's not true because I know so many different people in similar bodies have wildly different experiences within those bodies and also have different abilities to learn and interact with this kind of stuff so it's like so then what's the answer and it's like oh right so you have to have characters that are in the same body they have to be totally different characters within the book sometimes so sometimes you'll see a peripheral character who you're like wait isn't that the person that was in the wasn't that the ex-boyfriend in the one chapter and you're right. like, I'm not the doorman now I don't under is the ex-boyfriend the doorman but it's not <laughs> it's just that that same body is living a different life which I think is absolutely possible mm, I was wondering what the significance of that was that is that's really interesting um, were there other, you had mentioned rules a couple of times and, you know, one of the rules was that people wouldn't show emotion, um, this, you know, sort of weird rule or circumventing of the rules that you were just talking about. Were there other rules that you kind of set up for yourself as you were creating it? Yes, I did have, um, so one of my rules was you cannot change the position 
of a body in a certain time period. So whatever, you know, whatever paper doll, do you know, you remember that with paper dolls? Like they're always in the same position. So you strap on different Mm -hmm. outfits, but you can't change the position of their bodies. And so I made that, um, I made that rule so that I, so that I would really work with the, with the body that I had so that I wouldn't like change the positionality of the body just because it made me uncomfortable. Um, I made sure that the characters couldn't, you know, there's only one time in the book where I break the characters looking straight out at the viewer. And I did it at the, just at the moment, you know, it was sort of a, it was a very pivotal moment for me in the book where I finally let the characters just see each other and not the viewer. Um, and I used that specifically um, for a reason. I always had things on color backgrounds. If I was writing about thoughts, um, like a monologue for the thoughts, I was usually trying to do it um, in white writing on a dark background and without a bubble around it, without a frame around it. Um, just cause I feel like that's how those things exist in my life. They exist as part of the environment. I mean, I know when I say this to you, it must all sound crazy, but there really was a kind of a, a rhythm and a rule and a method for everything that kind of kept me in check as I was going, because I'd never drawn anything before. I'd never really drawn a book. I'd never really drawn anything more than a few pages. And I just feel like I needed the rules so that I could guide myself forward. Yeah, no, that's where I was going. I was going to ask my understanding was it seemed like you you haven't had any, you know, particular arts training in your past. So, you know, it's so interesting to decide that a graphic memoir is the format, you know, to go with for this story. Did you have a moment when you were like, oh, shit? Oh, yeah, I had like 200 of those. Are you kidding? (laughs) You know, I had drawn the original piece, but I wasn't that great at um, drawing. It took me a really long time to make that one piece with Michael Jackson. I make it sound like it was like two hours one day, but it was actually like seven days, you know, for a single conversation. Because if you, you know, as I was writing it in Sharpie um, and, and kind of making all of that happen, I realized if I messed up a single letter or a single word, I had to do the whole thing over. So when I did it, well, then I was like, okay, so you're going to have to learn how to do this on a computer. And you're going to have to learn how to draw on a computer, which is really different than drawing on paper. Because even if I can draw on paper and I can do it, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably okay at it. I draw a lot in journals. I've always drawn and my agent knows this because whenever I send in manuscripts, if I'm having trouble with a scene, I draw an object from it. So she'll often get a manuscript from me with like a teapot in the middle of it. And she's like, okay, I guess this one was hard for you. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine with that kind of thing, but I just to like to do a book and to do the level of art production required and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I sold the book and then I was like, Oh Lord, now what? And now what was like, well, yeah, you just got to figure this out now. Now you got to figure out how to draw noses. So like to get on that and you know (laughs) and the way that I got on that actually was by watching a lot of YouTube videos on how to draw like it's really funny but noses in particular were really hard for me so you know I just kept watching (laughs) I was like how does that person do a nose and how does this person do a nose and and finally I got to the point where I was like okay so my noses look like this and sort of carving my personality back out of the computer screen was really the the hardest part of figuring out how to draw because um, because anyone can trace something and anyone can, you know, like you just, you have to kind of find your own distinct personality within that. And 
and I knew that if the book was going to be coherent, it that I had to kind of find and nail my style quickly. Yeah, carving your personality out of the computer screen. I love that phrase. Um, yeah, well, and I, I'm so glad you were talking about all of the different rules because I think that so frequently, you know, people think that the you know, ultimate creativity or what would be easiest is to have sort of no constraints, but it's often um, the most difficult thing. <laughs> I think that I, for me, I don't know what you think, but I find that completely um, untrue. I feel like the more constraint I offer myself, the more the rest of me will rise up to kind of meet and change things. So like if I tie one hand behind my back, then the other hand is going to just get really, really creative. Right. So the minute I said to myself, the characters have to always exist as paper dolls and they always have to be on color backgrounds, then I immediately had to be like, wow. So if you're going to, if you're really going to do this, you have to do so many different things with how big and small they appear on the page, you know, what you're going to do with all the text. The text has to have its own personality. Like you're just going to have to really, you're going to have to go, going to go kind of guns blazing if this is going to remain visually interesting at all. Yeah, no, I think those constraints become like a total inspiration. Yeah. In fact, that's what I usually do with my students when I'm teaching, when, you know, I teach at various MFA programs. And usually if someone comes into me with a, with a problem where it's like, I don't know how to do this scene, I try to give them like, let's talk about a constraint that could work for you in this scene. So what happens if you're writing this scene of a fight and no one can ever look at each other? Like what happens to the rest of the room? And how and where do they go and how do they propel themselves around? Like what happens in that moment? So you finish the book and you publish it and then you have to promote it. Um, and I read a really wonderful interview that you did with Long Reads in which you talk about going on a Boston public radio show and how the host objected to you describing your characters as East Indian because he thought his audience wouldn't understand what you meant. Can you sort of describe that incident? <laughs> Yeah, it's in the book as well. Um, so I, you know, a few years ago when I came out with my first novel, I got a call from the this producer at Boston Public Radio and said, we want to have you read your book on the air. Can you do it? And of course, you know, like, yes, that's a dream. Please let me do that. So they said, pick out an excerpt and send it to us. And I did. And I sent it to them. And then immediately um, he wrote back, you know, there are three characters in here with really unusual names, and that's really going to be very hard for our audience. You know, if there were, you know, I, I, you know, if you just cut it down to two, maybe it would be easier. But um, so that's a problem. And you know, my characters' names were Akil, Divya, and Dimple. I mean, it was just, you know, what I mean? it was like not very hard at all. Um, actually, in that particular scene, it was Akil, Amina, and Dimple were the names of those characters. Just, they were pretty easy as far as, frankly, Indian names go. They were really, the, the really easy ones. So I was like, really? You're going to lose your shirt over this? But then, um, so first he did that. Then he was sort of um, saying, you know, and would a teenager really speak this way? It doesn't really sound like how a teenager would speak. And the whole thing was really wild because it was, it was like, this is a published book. This book has been published in... 11 countries would you say this to a white author i just can't see that really happening you know what i mean like i can't see you turning to you know 
one of my white male cohort and being like, well, you got, you know, five male names in here and they're really throwing me. And, you know, by the way, I don't think this character should sound like that. I just, there was something about it that was weird. And I was like, all right, well, I just kind of got to go with this. And I kept trying to work with him, but every, every time, and it became really clear as I was trying to kind of, you know, in these moments, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. So I kept kind of being like, okay, you know, um, maybe let's try, you know, I didn't change the scene and I didn't change their names. Um, cause my husband, you know, when I asked my husband, I was like, am I supposed to change their names? And he was like, no, you're supposed to protect your work against bad ideas. This guy's crazy. Come on. And so, but I kind of, we kept going and then eventually it got to the point where it's like, can you write, the producer said to me, can you write an introductory sentence to this piece so that we can contextualize it for the readers? And I said, yes, it is. The year 1983, three East Indian teenagers are on the roof of their home in New Mexico. They're waiting for the annual migration of the snow geese. And he, oh, it was so funny. He wrote back, um, he'd cut, he'd crossed out uh, South Asian or East Indian, sorry, he'd crossed out East Indian and he had written Asian Indian, three Asian Indian teenagers and he had changed a bunch of other things. They are waiting for the migration of the majestic snow geese, exclamation point, whatever. All of the rest of it, I honestly didn't care about. But when I, I kept reading this Asian Indian, and then I called a bunch of my friends because I was like, what is this? Like, what is happening? <laughs> Do you, have you ever said Asian Indian? And all of them were like, no, that is not a thing anyone would ever say, except in the sentence, I don't mean like in like American Indian, I mean like Asian Indian. And, and we were just laughing about that because the only person that would ever say that is somebody that was neither, right? So it's just, it was one of those things where it was like, why is he, what is happening? And even then when I tried to push back on that and I was like, that is not something like, can we, you know, I basically wrote back like, let's use East Indian, um, Asian Indian is like, we're not going to use Asian Indian. And he wrote back, well, you know, I'm really sorry. Alas, just so you know, Americans never, we don't even know the term. East Indian. That's just not something any of us would ever use. Also for, you know, for further, they're also West Indians, by the way, you know, that's something. And, you know, you should consider that. He had this whole crazy logic, but all of it basically amounted to you are not an American. And I'm telling you how Americans work because I am actually the authority on Americans. And the whole thing was so frustrating because I was born and raised in America. I really understand how we talk about ourselves. East Indians talk about ourselves in America. And at this point, we actually use South Asian most often. But the whole thing or Indian American has, you know, since come up. But it was a really wild moment of having somebody tell me that they understood what America needed to understand me. And meanwhile, it's a man who can't even handle three two-syllable Indian names. And the feeling of having to just always shape myself for that man to let me through a door. Just always having to like cut some part of myself so that that man can feel comfortable. Which is, by the way, just an illusion. That man's never going to feel comfortable. That man only exists to tell you that he's letting you through the door but kind of as a favor to you, because really he doesn't have to. You're lucky to be there. Anyway, so I wrote about that. And um, it didn't go, you know, 
it was interesting because at that that moment was a really hard one for me to write about in the book specifically because I, as I was writing it, I was like, there are so many people that are going to get angry with you just for even bringing this up. And the thing they're going to say is, oh, isn't this hard? Like, you know, oh, poor you, you had to deal with this. Like, this is the hardest thing you've had to deal with. And it's not, there've been so many worse things. I've had to deal with so many worse things, but somehow this sort of casual, the casualness with which, he just refuted every part of my reality. And the fact that he will never, ever have to be anyone other than the guy that does that. It's so exhausting sometimes. Well, I'm curious to talk about this, the kind of connected idea of, quote, finding your audience. And and also this notion that some people like to kind of foist onto you that you need to change yourself or represent yourself in a different way or maybe sanitize your experience or let's say your character's names in order to find your audience. What has your experience been with that? Because I, I understand it also is something that sort of came up with your first novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to yeah. Dancing. Yeah. Um, so that whole idea is really funny to me because it is basically that idea is clung to by people who never imagine people like me as the audience which is a wild thing to really understand how not only do they render me the artist invisible, but they render everyone that could possibly understand me in a gut and intuitive level. They render those people invisible as well. It's like nobody exists, but their very limited idea of the world. And the thing that's really frustrating about that for me, um, just as a person who makes things with that first novel with sleepwalkers, there was a moment and we were lucky enough to go to auction with that, um, that book. And I remember sitting in a meeting with an editor who said, well, we love this book. We love it. It's great. Um, but one thing is that, you know, it is, uh, you know, there's just so many stories in here. There's an immigrant story, you know, it's a, and then there's a very political aspect. Then there's a ghost story and there's kind of a love story. And it's really, it's just, it's just all of these things. And, you know, you're kind of just going to have to choose the most important story and go with that. And I was like, well, what, uh, uh, you know, and my brain was sort of like, well, but it's all tied together. That's kind of what it is to live in America. You are all these multiple selves. And surely, like, I've read many other books that that are in which characters are allowed to have that kind of um, complexity. So, it, and, you know, I was trying to kind of say that to her. And she said, no, no, no. But, you know, I think we, the thing that you're going to find with audiences, I mean, they're going to, they really just want you to say the most important story in here. And, you know, you're just going to have to boil it down. And I said, well, what's the most important story in here? And she said, well, it's obviously the immigrant story. And I kicked my agent under the table because I was like, that's it. It's done. Let's get out of here. And we could, because I had eight other offers on the table. We could leave that person. But that conversation has haunted me every day since, because I think of how many people went to that editor with their complex selves, the selves that I could have been reading about my entire life and found nowhere, because literature somehow always only ever found room for whiteness and all of those different people, like how many people were there before me that had to like shave off entire parts of themselves just to get published, just to have a book out there with any small part of us in it. 
I think about that all the time, about how many people, and I think especially about the people, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years older than me in this industry who have done so much work for the rest of us, who have walked through those doorways knowing that they were going to lose a limb, lose some part of their skin, lose some part of their dignity, and they did it anyway because it mattered to them that that we be able to find them that we able we be able to find some version of ourselves, even if it had been badly disfigured in the process of coming out. And now that you have more experience, how do you protect yourself in the integrity of your work? Do you have any kind of rules or boundaries with regard to that in terms of self-promotion or, you know, editors you work with or things that you will or will not do? For sure. I mean, yes. And I, I feel really lucky to be in a position where I can work with the editors that I work with right now. I work with, um, I'm working with one world and they've been really good to me and they, they're putting out a lot of very interesting books and it's a division of random house that's headed by Chris Jackson and Nicole counts as the other, other editor there. And they're just, they're really interesting. And, and they always ask me for more complexity, not less. And that has been a godsend. But the other thing that I have found is um, all of these years that I was writing, I was writing for 20 years before I got published, by the way. And I feel like I'm, I try to be really loud about that and say that as often as possible. Cause I think there are a lot of women that get into, especially Brown and black women that get into their thirties and forties and they feel like the time, like time has passed them by. And that whatever dream they had, it sort of hit its expiration date. They would have made it by now. And I just don't think that that is true. And also, um, I just, I feel like you're right. You didn't get the same opportunities. Maybe the industry didn't see you as well. I didn't get published until I was 40. If you have a story that you're trying to get out there, if you have some creative work that you're trying to do, keep doing it. I didn't know in those 20 years I wasn't getting published that eventually I would. I didn't know that I would get to the point where we would eventually be able to walk away from an editor because we had others interested. So one of the things that I tell myself often, you ask like, how, how do I negotiate that now? It's not that there's a single hard line. It's not like I will or won't do this because that's not how this industry works. And the asks they usually come at you. They come at you in a very quick moment. They come while you're doing 200 other things. And it's usually while you're marketing or promoting the book and you have less time to sort of worry about the nuances. Um, what I try to do is if I have a funny feeling about something, because I've been taught to quash any funny feelings I ever have just in like hope of getting along and, and being accepted. Um, I try to tell myself, if you have a funny feeling about it, it's probably for a reason so sit with it for a moment before you make any moves. You're allowed to sit with this. You're allowed to take your time. You're allowed to figure out what feels funny and why. Um, and then the other thing is in terms of who I work with, I can't choose always. I will not always be able to choose like, oh, it's only this editor and it's only this imprint. That's not going to be my life, nor is it probably going to be anybody's. But the one thing I can do is I can choose to surround myself with a really vibrant writing community who has the dreams for me that I have for myself. And I definitely have that. I have handpicked a group of writers that I admire the work that they're doing in the world tremendously. And I know that they are looking out for me. And when they read my work, they're 
doing it to make the best possible work, not to make it make sense to them, but to literally go for the best possible work. And I trust them with that. So that's a good seg into my final question, which is, I just moved into a new space and I was just collecting a bunch of different photographs to make a sort of wall of creative ancestors that I was going to put over my desk. Basically the writers and artists and thinkers whose you know work has brought me comfort or inspiration. And I'd love to ask you that question. Um, who are your creative ancestors, you know, sort of your chosen family? Oh, what a great question. Okay. Okay. So the first the first author that ever let me in on the great knowledge that I didn't have to write for the audience that would never believe me in the first place was Toni Morrison. Um, and that was a really, and I know, and I understood very clearly that she wasn't writing for me, but I also knew she wasn't writing for white Americans either. And just the idea that she could claim that kind of space was wild and incredible to see that. Um, also, Arundhati Roy um, is always, has been somebody whose career I followed because she's so, she's such a deft writer. She's incredible and just imaginative and brilliant and all of the great things. But also she sort of fearlessly in her nonfiction writes about whatever the fuck she wants to. And I just think it's I just admire the way that she does that. Despite a lot of people saying like, this isn't really your business. She's sort of like, no, it is my business. I'm allowed to write about what I want to write about. Um, in terms of graphic work, I really love um, Linda Berry comes to it with so much heart. And there's something about her access to creativity. I find really generous and her stories were the first ones. Like when I first started reading the Marlis comics, I was like, oh, it can be this small. You can talk about a moment this small and have it register on this profound of a scale. Wild. Like it was just really interesting to me that she could take the interior life of a, of a sort of preteen girl and make it into a thing of wonder, not mockery. And, but like genuine wonder and, and imbuing that with admiration. I really like the way that she claims these sort of side stories um, and takes things that most people think of as a peripheral voice and elevates it to like the high, you know, center star of the show. Um, I really love that about her. And then I guess the other one would be somebody who's actually in my writing group, who's just in my chosen family of life anyway, which is Alex Chi, Alexander Chi, um, who's written, a very, you know, beautiful novels, Edinburgh and um, Queen of the Night, but who's also his nonfiction most recently, um, a series of essays that he came out with last year. It's just, they're just really well done. And there is a way that he is as both a mentor, but also a human in the world, um, an energy that he gives off, a thoughtfulness and a way of sort of looking out for other people and propelling all of us forward that I take so much uh, solace in. I just, I find him to be a really incredible human. So I have to admit something. Ever since this conversation with Mira, I've been hearing voices. Or to be more accurate, noticing voices. I've started noticing all the conversations that loop around in my head constantly, like the low murmur in a coffee shop. 
I examine and turn over conversations from the past, exploring different outcomes. I rehearse and refine conversations for the future. I engage in endless conversation with myself about this or that worry. It's a pulsing background static that fades in my more peaceful, relaxed moments and crackles at high volume in my more anxious moments. But what is that static on the line doing? I would argue that it's obscuring your voice, or in my case, obscuring my voice. All that rehearsing and debating and planning is a distraction from a deeper wisdom. As Mira said when she talked about dealing with dodgy self-promotion situations, sometimes she has to pause when something feels off, giving herself permission to take some time and space in order to pinpoint where the feeling is coming from so that she can then take action with integrity. When you're in a rush, it's impossible to tap into that deeper wisdom, that inner voice that always knows the right thing to do. Reclaiming our time and our space is how we turn the static down on all those external voices so that we can rediscover our own. Speaking of turning up the volume on that inner voice, I have no doubt that many of you are interested in kicking off 2020 with a clean slate and infusing the year ahead with work that feels more meaningful and in tune with your self-expression. Well, I've got some good news if you'd like a helping hand with that. My online course Reset reopens for registration for the January 2020 session today, December 17th, just in time to help you put that new year, new you plan into action. If you haven't heard about it yet, Reset is a cosmic tune-up for your workday, a four-week program designed and created by me that will teach you how to work in a way that's intentional, energizing, and inspiring. It's all about learning how to move from an over-busy, speed-obsessed way of working into what I call a heart-centered approach to productivity an approach to work that's sustainable and fulfilling. If you're ready to recalibrate the way you work in 2020, visit reset-course.com now to register for the January session. Once again, that's reset-course.com to get details about my new online course, Reset. As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for giving everything a little more hi-fi audio polish and for creating our lovely theme song. If you'd like to stay in touch with me in between episodes, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. You'll get a bi-monthly dose of my writing, updates on my projects, and a lot of thought-provoking links. Thanks for listening, and remember to hurry slowly. Thank you.